Let us pray. We are reminded that God loves us not on the basis of who and what we are, but on the basis of who and what He is. His grace is matchless. And we commemorate that that grace now in giving, not from a sense of compulsion, but from a sense of great gratitude. And we do this through the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We have assembled ourselves this morning in obedience to God's Word to observe the communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. These are all synonymous terms. We don't do it just to obey a command. Indeed, it's a great honor and privilege to partake of the Lord's Supper. We are here as a corporate body, the universal body of Christ. And yet this is unique in that each one of us individually are to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ as we dispense these elements. We recognize that knowing why we do what we do is important. And we don't observe this ritual in order to forgive our sins, in order to be spiritual or be closer to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it tells us to keep on doing this in remembrance of me. That's why we observe the Lord's Supper is to remember Jesus Christ. We live in a very fast-paced, rat-race-type world. We all have tons of details to handle every day. It's very easy for God to be just squeezed out of the picture. Jesus Christ knew this, and this is one reason He gave us the command to keep on observing the Lord's Supper. In fact, throughout history, in every dispensation... God left something here for us to remember and focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is just a visual that will help us understand this this point. There are three things that we see. The altar, the table, and the throne. All three of these speak of Jesus Christ. Before the first advent, before Jesus Christ returned, the altar, which was a brazen altar, it was outside the temple, outside the tabernacle. The altar is where the sacrifices were made, and there was a lot of detail as to how they were to sacrifice animals. They had to be perfect in condition because they represented the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come and be the atoning sacrifice. The animals were just previews, just a look ahead to what Christ was going to do on the cross. So in the altar, with the altar, it looked back to the fall. Indeed, it was because of Adam's sin and our personal sins that there had to be an altar. There had to be a sacrifice. So they would look back on the fall and realize that they needed something outside of themselves. 
some someone who would come along that was perfect, that was qualified to take care of their sins. And that's what the altar did. They look back and it's really showing the need of an altar, the need of a sacrifice. But then the altar also looked forward to Jesus Christ. Everything that was done. And there were a lot of specific procedures and details that they had to comply with in order to look forward to the cross. And that's what they were doing. So they looked back to the fall, recognizing that they needed a Savior. They needed salvation. And they would also look forward to the cross, which was God supplying the need. All the dispensations up to the cross had the altar. Now, today we are in the church age and represented by the table. Even on the table here, you'll see the bread and the cup, and that represents Jesus Christ. The altar represented Jesus Christ and His work on our behalf on the cross. And the table represents His perfection in His body, which made Him qualified, and the work is represented by the cup. We see in... Let's see if I can make this roll right. Yeah, here's 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 says, Keep on doing this in remembrance of me. See, that's the looking back part. Verse 25, we look back at the cross. We remember our great so, uh, salvation that was provi- provided by Christ. But it also, we look forward, and we look forward to, by the way, the, the verse, 1 Corinthians 11:26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Now that's looking forward to what's next. And what, what is next on our agenda in the church age is the first phase of the second coming, which we call the rapture. So in this verse, we two verses actually, verse 25, we look back at the cross We remember what Christ has done for us. Our so great salvation depends upon what Christ did on the cross. And then we keep on doing what we're doing today, observing this ritual until He comes. So our focus again is forward. makes us remember that God has not abandoned us. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming back in two phases. The first phase is the rapture. Then this moves us forward. Now this is the millennium. You have the dispensation of the Gentiles, the Jews. This is the dispensation of the church, the one that we're in. Once we're out of here with the rapture, then the tribulation will be in this period. And then the second coming, we have the throne. Now in the throne, they look back at, or they will look back at the second coming, phase two. When the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ coming again, I like the way that Clarence Larkin in his book on dispensation describes this as the second coming in two phases. The first phase is going to impact us, the church. And we will be out of here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 and following gives us the information about the details of what's going to happen at that point. This is our blessed hope. We're looking forward to that. And then in the millennium, they're going to remember the second coming. The second coming is when Jesus Christ actually returns and plants His feet on terra firma upon the earth. They're going to remember that. 
And then they're also going to remember the new earth. During the millennial reign, Jesus Christ is going to be the ruler of the world. Capital city, Jerusalem. He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And it's going to be perfect environment. However, there is still going to be an active sin nature. And this is going to motivate them of what's coming next, which is going to be even better. Because when the new earth, the new heavens and the earth are created, there's not going to be any more old sin nature. And so what you're seeing here is a representation throughout the ages of how God has demonstrated in a physical sense by the altar and the table and the throne that Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of history. And we can remember things in the past and then we can be motivated by things that are yet in the future. The Lord's Supper actually consists of two elements. You have the unleavened bread and you have the cup. The unleavened bread speaks of Christ's perfect body, sinless perfection. He had to be born of a woman and no physical father. In other words, the virgin birth. Had he been born by a human father, he would have been disqualified to go to the cross and be our sacrifice because he would have had an old sin nature. He was tested beyond anything that we can ever imagine. The things that we see in the Bible are just little glimpses of how Satan tried to trip him up. If he had have sinned one time, even a mental attitude sin, we would have no salvation. I was just thinking, um, just the other day, I opened the refrigerator and there was a pot in it and it had a fairly heavy lid on it. And it fell out and hit my big toe. And my big toe is black now. That alone would have disqualified me. <laughs> I looked at Carrie and she was over here like this. Oh, so you can identify with that. Okay. Just think of going through 33 years and never committing a sin. Only Jesus Christ was qualified to do that. That is what the unleavened bread speaks of. The leaven represents sin in the Bible. This is unleavened bread. So when we partake of this bread, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is the only one who provides our so great salvation because He is the only one who is qualified to be our sacrifice. Indeed, it's an honor to publicly take of the bread and of the cup. Because when you do that, you are making a public statement that you have put your faith alone in Christ alone. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you believe that that is the only way of salvation. The cup represents the work of Christ on the cross. It wasn't His physical blood that provided for our so great salvation. When the Bible mentions the blood of Christ, it is a link to the animals who were sacrificed, which was a preview of what Christ was going to do on the cross. They all had to be be killed in a way that they would shed blood. 
and that shed blood was a representation of the spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's when God imputed your sins and my sins, the sins of the entire world upon Him, that He underwent the punishment that we deserve. You don't have to be a member of Country Bible Church in order to partake of this Lord's Supper because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are part of His body. You are part of the universal church and you are qualified. However, it's important for us to make sure that we are going to partake of it in a reverent manner. That means we need to be able to focus. In a way, it's a test. For this short time that we are going to be dispensing these elements, can you focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and put all of the details, all your worries, all of the things that clutter our minds, can you set that aside and focus entirely upon our Lord? That's what it's about, is remembering the Lord Jesus Christ. If we all can do that, when you have the royal family of God assembled and all of us individually are focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ and appreciating who and what He is, then we are doing it the way that God would have us do it. So to prepare ourselves, we're going to have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we have the option of doing a little introspection to make sure that there's no unconfessed sins lurking about in our soul so that we can all observe this filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us, that we can set aside all the things of this earth and focus our minds completely and entirely upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you will flood our, flood our souls with the knowledge that we have of our Savior's perfect body and his sinless perfection as we partake of the bread, for we pray it in his name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripe we are healed. The night before our Lord was to be crucified, He took the bread, He blessed it, He broke it, and said, This is my body that is given to you. Take and eat thereof. 
Again, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to partake of the cup, the great sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We'll be eternally grateful in thanking Him for it. We pray that you will give us a sense of appreciation that will last for all eternity. And we will focus upon that work as we partake the cup, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And he, God the Father, laid upon him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. God demonstrated his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. On that same occasion, our Lord took the cup. He said, this is the... New Testament in my blood. Take and drink thereof. We shall stand and sing hymn number 258. Slowly or quietly on the third verse. Crescendo on the last verse. Let us stand as we sing. Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. I'm going to put a map up on the screen because maps tell us a lot. Chapter 9 has a lot to do with taking oaths and how the Israelites, the leaders, made an oath that they regretted. But in order to keep their oath, which God expects them to do and us to do, it required them to go to Gibeon and save the Gibeonites who had lied to them and conned them and were responsible for an oath that they made that they should not have taken. And yet they're going to honor that oath, and in honoring that oath, they're going to honor God. On the map you see the green arrows. You have... Hebron, Eglon, Lachish, Jarmuth, and Jebus. These are the kings, five kings that decided to attack the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites were part of a confederation of the Canaanites. But because they believed that the God of Israel was the true God, 
And now they had taken sides with the Israelites. This confederation of five kings decided to move out. That's what this is showing you, the route they took to come over to Gibeon, which of course where the Gibeonites were. And they clashed with them there. They had no idea that the Israelites were going to march all night and get there in time to have a victory, a decisive victory, so much so that the remainder of the armies would retreat. And that's what this yellow line is showing, the retreat of these five kings who would go against Gibeon because they had sided with God's people. We understand that. And we also went to several verses last time that demonstrated that when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you trust in God and not your own devices, that God is going to fight your battles for you. And he says in several places, he will discomfit your enemies. Now, discomfort has several meanings. It can mean confuse, cause confusion. It can mean to rout the enemy, destroy the enemy, crush the enemy. And this is one of the things that we learn is that no matter how hard it may seem, we can always trust the Lord to fight our battles if and only if, this is a big if, we will trust Him rather than ourselves to be victorious. This is about, from Gilgal, they moved out. This is the Jews, this purple. The Jews marched overnight. This is uphill. You can see the mountainous area here. At night, and they have a victory. They're already tired. They've had no sleep and no food. And when they start running, the enemy, then... The Israelites are going to chase them. Now, this is somewhere from here down to here, somewhere around 30 or 40 miles. They didn't have horses. This was all on foot, carrying swords and spears and shields and the armor. And we're going to learn from the things that happen here how God is able to do what we cannot do. One of the first things we learned was that God had rained stones down from heaven. These are hailstones. And these stones hit only the enemy. If I was an enemy, I think I'd be a little bit discouraged after I saw all of my, all my guys falling and being killed and not one stone hit any of the Israelites. Then we're, where we're kind of going to pick up our study today was the next big help from God. Joshua is going to ask the Lord to do something amazing. Joshua was bold, we might even say brazen, certainly audacious. He just asked the Lord, can you stop the sun? Can you stop the moon? We need more light. We need more time. Uh, can you do that for us? That should embarrass all of us, shouldn't it? I mean, sometimes if we're honest, think, well, this situation is so tangled. I, I, I don't. The Lord can't untangle this. 
And you've heard me say, I don't know how many times, God can unscramble eggs. And it's not a magician's trick. He can do whatever He wants to do. He control, controls all the forces of nature. And I'm not talking about Mother Nature. There's no such thing. I get so tired of, I see the weather report and what's happening. Well, Mother Nature's really not treating us well. God is in control of all things. And that's what we are learning as the Jews are chasing these Canaanites and they are in full retreat. With that map in mind, let us turn to our Scripture now. We're going to go to Joshua chapter 10. Why don't we start? Let's see, where can we start? This morning, we'll just start with verse, we'll reread uh, verse 10 and 11. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 10. And the Lord confounded them before Israel. Now, you should underline confound or confounded. I think the King James says he discomfited them. That is the Hebrew word hamam, and it means all those things I was saying before. You know, discomfort. Every time I hear the word discomfort, I think of being uncomfortable. Discomfortable. Well, when you have hailstones raining down on you from heaven, I think that would make you a little uncomfortable. So underline that verse and remember it. That we can remember things that when we seem to be overwhelmed by our circumstances and the enemies that are formed against us, all we have to do is trust in God, wait on His help, and our enemies will be discomfited. The Lord discomfited them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the ascent of Beth Hebron, excuse me, Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. Notice, he, the Lord, struck them. Verse 11, And it came about, as they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Haran, that the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died there. They died, and there were more who died from the hailstones than whom the sons of Israel killed with a sword. Let me get back to our map. I want to show why when we're naming these places, we need to... Look at the map as well. Beth Haran. Here's Beth Haran, not far outside of Gibeon. They're chasing there, and they're going to be in full retreat. And all this way, here's Azekah, here's Makeda. What is, what is God doing the whole time that they're in, in this retreat? Bam, 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 bam. The hailstones are pummeling them all the way. 
That's about, I don't know, 30 miles. How would you like to have thousands on your team? And you're already, you have hornets on your tail. And as you're going, you're seeing these hails for 30 miles. Well, we're going to see what the five kings that started this are going to do. They're going to run in a cave. And there's a lot to say about that, but we need to move on. I just wanted to show you, this is kind of a... um, This Ajalon is a valley. This is the Ajalon Valley that goes through here. So they're taking the uh, route of least resistance in order to get these hornets off their tail. And they're getting bombarded the whole time by these giant hailstones. And we went into last Sunday about God has enough hailstones to do the job Remember in Job, it says that he has stored up the hailstones for war. So he's, he's, he's really letting the enemies of Israel have it. Verse 12, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord. I want you to underline that too because it's kind of an innocuous little phrase there that you can miss. When it says that he spoke to the Lord, it means that he implored. He prayed to the Lord. He's gonna, this is where he asks for God to do something that has never been done before and never since. So he actually prays to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites, which is another designation for these Canaanites, before the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel... O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. Now, (laughs) some people have a problem with this. They think, first of all, this isn't scientifically correct. They think, well... You know, the, the sun really doesn't rise and the sun really doesn't set. We all know that, don't we? The earth goes around the sun. The sun doesn't go around the earth. But it appears to us when we're standing on planet earth, we look at the horizon and it looks like the sun is coming up, doesn't it? But we know that what's making it look like it's coming up is the earth is turning. And God didn't actually just put the brakes on the sun so it couldn't move. That's not what he did. What he did is essentially stop the earth from turning. And and the sun appeared to stay put in the sky. And those who would besmirch the Bible by saying, see, it's not scientific. Well, if that's not scientific, we're not scientific either. Because when you watch the news, what do you see? Tomorrow at 6.30 is sunrise, right? Some churches have Easter sunrise services. You go to an almanac, and what do you see? The times posted there for the sunrise and the sunset. We don't want to equivocate. We don't even want to address people who are so asinine. It looked like the sun stopped, and that's the way the Bible describes it. I think before I go any further with regards to this sun, sunrise, uh, standing still, 
I think what we need to do is put something in perspective. Why would Joshua ask such a thing to begin with? Something, there's something here that we might easily miss. Where is this all taking place? Right in the dead center of enemy territory where there's about a gazillion Canaanites and all of them would love to uh, wipe out the Jews. They went about 15 miles. This is the Jewish army. It was nighttime. They get the, or probably around dusk, they get the news from the Gibeonites, help, we need help. So they leave and they march all night, no food, no sleep. They do a big battle and now they're pursuing the enemy and they are exhausted. And they don't have enough time to do it. Do you know what will happen if they are not successful? See, this is what you, you have to realize. It's kind of reading between the lines, but there's a lot that we can, we can get from this. If night fell, and you couldn't do battle at night, you can't find them. And the next day came up, it would give the, the Canaanites enough time to regroup and there were scads of them. And they could have attacked Israel. They, have, they could have countered attack, and that would be the annihilation of the Jews. Do you see what's at stake? This is why Joshua didn't hesitate to say, what we need is more time. We need more daylight. What can we do? Anytime you need something, you're in desperate straits. Whether you're desperate or whether you just need a little thing what are we to do? We go to the Lord. We pray to, the, to God, and this is what He did. The Israelite troops would have been annihilated had not they been on the move, aggressively destroying them. People who are uncomfortable with the idea of Joshua annihilating the enemy usually don't consider the fact that if he didn't the job uh, didn't complete the job, then they would have been annihilated. Let's make a, some let's make a, an, an, a parallel to our spiritual life because not many people get this. There's a lot of people who go to church and they go there to play church. They don't go there to learn more about our great God about how to execute His plan in our life in this age, they're not there for that. They're there so that they can impress other people. I have a new... Well, I don't have a new dress. Some ladies come and they have a new dress. And their sole purpose of being there is strut about in their new dress. Some people go to church to sing in the choir. We don't have that problem. You're the choir. So you have all these reasons why people go and they just don't get it. They don't understand that we're in the same shape as Joshua and the Israelites with regard to our very being in our spiritual life. If we don't overcome the enemy, the enemy is going to overcome us. You understand what I'm saying? In a spiritual sense? And you have 
mediocre believers who put the details of life before God and they just don't get it. They don't understand that we do spiritual combat every single day. Every day you're in spiritual combat. Now what would happen if you had an army that faced spiritual combat every single day and they didn't even know they were in a war? They were doing their regular deal. They weren't sharpening their swords. They weren't practicing with their spears. They didn't learn how to use the shield. What's going to happen to them? They're going to get wiped out, aren't they? They're going to become casualties. And that's exactly what happens to mediocre believers who are just playing church. Listen to this. If you don't aggressively seek the Lord, you will become a casualty. No doubt about it. None of us are strong enough, smart enough to be able to fight a battle, that combat that we're in every day, if we're not seeking the Lord's help. And that's what Joshua did. It looked, it looked like it was impossible. His troops were spent. It was going to get dark soon. The enemy would get away, they would regroup, and then here they would come in mass and they'd be destroyed. That's what our spiritual life is like. Aggressively seek the Lord and obey Him, and you can ask the most audacious things and see what God can do. It's not... See, a lot of people think, well, I'm going to go to church and they're going to try to pressure me to give up this, give up that, and be good and do this and do that. And I'm not about that. Okay. That's not what church is about anyway. We are here. This is a schoolhouse, actually. My job is to prepare the saints for spiritual combat. We're in school. And if you're not prepared, you will become a casualty. You know, there are so many traps and pitfalls. Satan, these people who think that Satan is this has a red epidermis and a trident and horns and a tail and all that, I just feel sorry for him. Satan is the great deceiver. He is the great counterfeiter. He's got lies everywhere, everywhere. Before this day is over, you're going to come in contact with no telling how many of Satan's lies. And I just hope that none of them come from here. Hopefully this is a safe zone. This is about truth. But you're going to come into that contact. And you have to aggressively seek God. Aggressively seeking God isn't coming to church every other Sunday. It's every single day. You need that spiritual nourishment. You need that training. You need that help. To where you can ask God for anything if you're in His will and know that He's going to take care of it. I know you all, all of us have problems, don't we? Maybe somebody's here having a hard time concentrating on what I'm saying because you're thinking about your problems. Open your ears. I'm telling you how to solve your problems. I don't care what it is. God is the solution. And this is the... Well, if you don't do this, you're going to be robbed of your contentment and your security and your happiness because all you can focus is on, on the problem. And Joshua is showing us, no, don't focus on the problem. I don't care what your circumstance is. 
I don't think your circumstance is as bad as Joshua was. I need more light. If I don't have more light, I'm going to get wiped out. I need the strength. I need this help. And so he went to God, and God is required by His very essence and His Word to come to your aid when you're aggressively seeking Him. You're obeying Him. You're in His will. He will do it. Now, let's get back to this son business. It, is, it, it might not be the scientific thing, but you realize that the sun, as far as we are concerned, rises and sets. And because the Bible uses it, doesn't mean it's not scientific. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 11, it says, The sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. Stood in their places. Ahmad means to to stand still. This isn't the only place that this occurs. Some people think, that's too hard. Can you really think that God is going to stop the sun and the moon? Why did the moon have to stop, by the way? And what was the moon doing there, anyhow? Have you ever seen the moon during the day? Just look. Get your nose out of your iPod or smartphone or day planner and look at the sky. Of course, at night is when the big show goes on. But you can look at the sky during the day and see something. I've seen the moon, the full moon before with the sun up. You can do that. That's, so he needed the moon and the sun to stand still. Everybody talks about the sun as if the moon is no big deal. Well, I'd like to see somebody stop the moon. In fact, when the earth quit rotating, what had to stop also? The moon. It just, God just essentially said, okay, stop. And the world, and it froze there. And so it looked like the sun and the moon just stood in their place. Joshua had the time that he needed to finish the job. Whew, isn't, that, isn't that a principle there too? God gave Joshua the time to finish the job. Are you like me? Are you a clock warrior? I'm always fighting the clock. If you don't believe it, just ask Carrie. She'll tell you. And sometimes I get exasperated. I don't have enough time. You have enough time. I have enough time. God's going to see to it that you have everything that you need. Here's a quote. This came from the uh, notes of Charlie Clough on Joshua. uh, Charlie Clough is a a pastor. And I'm going to just read it to you. And I I could spend a lot more time on this because there, there is evidence, documented evidence, that this actually took place. And this is outside the Bible even. This is what I'm going to give you. It's just one paragraph. Things were written in the 16th century that contained... Mexican traditions going back to before 1000 B.C. And notice, this is the Western Hemisphere, and they speak of hailstones, a long night, and earthquakes following a previous catastrophic 52 years before. The 52 years before this would be what? When God gave the ten plagues onto Egypt. Remember that? 16th century, 
This is Mexican tradition going back a thousand years. Speak of the hailstones, which we saw was falling on the enemies of Israel. So we have this report. It's very interesting that there's a similar kind of report. And notice, too, that that is similar to the Bible. And notice, too, that it's not just a borrowed legend from the Bible somehow leads to Western Hemisphere because this isn't reporting a long day. This is reporting a long night. You see, when it's light in the Eastern Hemisphere, what is it in the Western Hemisphere? It's dark. So they have this tradition that has been handed down and there are I don't want to go too far on this. I don't want to get off on this dog trail too far. That there was a hailstones and that there was a long night, which if, it's, if what the Bible says that Joshua had a long day in the Eastern Hemisphere, what does the Western Hemisphere have? A long night. Anyway, I thought some of you might like that. From look on your face, I don't know. I thought that was pretty interesting. Most of the time when you tell people you have extra biblical evidence of something in the Bible, they just, they just salivate. They just, oh, I can't, can't wait to hear it. The Bible's not enough. Give me something else. Verse 14. Joshua chapter 10 and verse 14. The sun stands still. Verse, uh, well, I didn't do 13, did I? Verse 13. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. And then it says, this is still part of verse 13, Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? What's the book of Jashar? Mary, you and your staff can get ready now if you'd like. What is the book of Jashar, anyway? Anybody heard of the book of Jashar? Okay. Perk up your ears and look up here. Because I'm going to tell you about the book of Jashar. Uh, the book of Jashar is a book that is not only found here, it's also um, found in Second Samuel, chapter one, verse seventeen and eighteen. It's also known as the Book of the Upright or the Book of the Just Ones. It had various things in it. It had military science, music, and poetry that was the content of the lost book of Jashar. It's lost. Nobody has, knows about it today. But from Easton's Bible Dictionary, it says this about the book of Jashar. It was probably a kind of national sacred songbook, a collection of songs and praise of the heroes of Israel, a book of golden deeds, a national anthology. We have only two specimens from the book, the words of Joshua, which we just went over there, and the song of the bow, a beautiful and touching, uh, mournful elegy which David composed 
on the occasion of the death of Saul and Jonathan. And like I said, you can go to uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. The book of Jashar. When was the last time you asked God for something big? When was the last time that the fat was in the fire? You know what that means? Huh? When was the last time your fat was in the fire? Anybody here got their fat in the fire now? What we can learn from Joshua is it doesn't matter what your problem is. Nothing is too big for God. And He cares. And you have to make the decision in your life. Am I going to aggressively seek God? You know what that means? It means I've got to set my priorities in order. How many of you have looked at yourself and wondered, what is my priority system? And unfortunately, most professing believers hardly even have God on the list. He's certainly not number one. Can you make Him number one? If you can't, who can? You have decided to do this. And you have God's promise. If you will seek Me, if you will obey Me, forget your enemies, I'll take care of them. Forget, your, forget about all the circumstances. Now, don't misconstrue this. this doesn't, God is not saying, look, if you obey me and you seek me and you trust me, you're not going to have any more problems. I didn't say that. He will give you victory over your problems. If anybody ever tells you that when you become a Christian, if you're really trusting God, you don't have any more problems, just... Walk away. They don't know what they're talking about. You're going to have problems. Do you have problems now? I'm tempted to ask, is there anyone here who doesn't have a problem? I'm afraid somebody's going to stand up. They're too dumb to know that they have problems. We all have problems. You cannot ask God for anything that's too big. The problem is, most of the time, we don't ask. It's kind of like when I was a child and I used to build model uh, ships, warships. A few model airplanes, but most of them were war, you know, uh, aircraft carriers and destroyers and things. Here's the analogy. I would go to the directions about the same point that you go to God in prayer and start asking. You ever heard when all else fails? I thought the directions was the paper you put on the, the, the pieces on so the glue wouldn't get on the table. That's what I thought the directions were for because that's what I used them for. And my biggest project was an aircraft carrier. It was about this long. It had all the little floors and pieces. and Oh, man, I, I didn't want to deal with all that infrastructure. That wasn't neat. I wanted to get to the planes and the guns, and I started gluing things everywhere. And then nothing fit. And when it's glued and you try to take a piece off, it's not that easy. 
Don't a lot of us live our spiritual life that same way? We want to get down to the neat thing. That's some churches, that's all they have. Come to our church. We have relatives. We will get you moving. They want to do all the, the neat things first. They don't want to go by the directions. We do have directions, you know. This is our owner's manual. This is our assembly book. When was the last time you tried to assemble something and didn't look at the directions? For some of us, it doesn't do that much good. These days, some Chinese guys over there trying to write these directions and you just... Anyway, but that's not the way this book is. There's nothing that you can ask that's too big for God. The problem is, the New Testament tells us we don't have because we don't ask. And when you're down to, you ever heard you're on your end of your rope? You're just barely hanging on. And that's when we did, oh yeah, maybe I better put this on, maybe I better ask God to do something. Why do we wait till then? Is it because we don't believe that He's interested in the small things? If you're not depending on God in the small things, you probably won't depend upon Him on the big things either. You depend on self. Isn't there a lot to learn from Joshua? I guess the one thing that I want you to go away with this morning more than anything else is to, for you to understand that you are in a desperate clash of powers. You, ha- you can avail yourself of God's power or you can come under the domination of Satan's power. You're going to be in one or the other. And I implore you that you recognize that God is there, He's ready. And if you ask Him to stop the moon and stop the sun, He didn't love Joshua any more than He loves you. He wants to help you just like He did Joshua. The question is, are you going to ask Him? Seek Him, obey Him, and ask Him and see what happens. I'd like everyone please to bow your heads and close your eyes. We have several visitors here today. And I don't know if they understand the most important decision that they're going to make. Why would you ask God to do something if you're not sure there is a God? How can you have the security and peace and comfort that you need in your soul if you don't know What's going to happen after you die? Here's the greatest news you'll ever hear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He went to the cross and paid for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. And now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to jump through any hoops. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved eternally. Your ticket to heaven is guaranteed. For those who think it's too easy, it wasn't easy for Christ. We reap the benefits of what Christ has done on our behalf. 
The issue is, are you going to trust in your work or Christ's work? And the moment you believe in Christ and trust Him and His work, you're born again. You're a royal family member of God. Now it's time to grow up and learn what to do in the rest of your life. Father, we're so thankful for this opportunity to partake of the Lord's Supper and remembering Jesus Christ in such a way. We pray that you will help us to remember that we are in spiritual combat every single day. We desperately need your help. That you remind us to ask you for it. And when you give, we give you praise and glory for who you are and what you have done for us and what you have promised that you will do for us. And we pray all these things in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.